Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today we'll be speaking with G. William Domhoff, Distinguished Professor Emeritus and Research Professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Four of his books are among the top 50 bestsellers in sociology for the years 1950 to 1995. Those books include Who Rules America, published in 1967, The Higher Circles, published in 1970, The Powers That Be, 1979, and Who Rules America Now, published in 1983. More recently, he is the author of The New CEOs with co-author Richard L. Zweigenhoff, and this book was published in 2011, Class and Power in the New Deal, also published in 2011 with Michael Weber, The Leftmost City, published in 2009 with Richard Gendron. And today we'll be speaking with Professor Domhoff about his article, Pension Fund Capitalism or Wall Street Bonanza, a critique of the claim that pension funds can influence corporations. And this article can be found on whorulesamerica.net. Professor Domhoff, welcome to Office Hours. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the program. It's an honor to speak with you. I had the pleasure of speaking with your co-author, Richard Zweigenhoff, in an earlier podcast, and it was a really enlightening conversation, and I really look forward to learning just as much from you today. Well, I hope I can be half as uh, live wire as he is. <laughs> Great. Well, why don't we get right into uh, the interview then? So, in my introduction, I referenced some of your earlier work in studying the power elite. So, if you would please uh, begin by telling us a little bit about why someone so interested in power structures would shift their focus to studying pension funds. Well, it's precisely because of my interest in power structures in that people were asserting that pension funds were a new way for uh, investors, workers, and so on to really have a significant influence within corporations. And since my research had led me to conclude it was the owners and managers of large corporations, more specifically than their directors and high-level executives that dominated corporations, I was surprised by this assertion. Uh, furthermore, I knew that there was a pension fund movement, uh, a responsible pension fund movement. And so I decided to look into that more closely and I soon found not only did these pension funds not have any impact on uh, large corporations beyond very superficial level, but I also found that the uh, pension fund issue was fascinating in and of itself. And that's why I wrote that particular document on whorulesamerica.net. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. That's really helpful. And so let's get right into the article itself. Again, pension fund capitalism or Wall Street bonanza. Can you tell us a little bit about and speak about uh, about the article itself and what your motivation was for writing it? Well, once I got into the issue of, of power and control in corporations via pension, I learned that there had been a pension fund movement that started in the uh, 80s. And strangely enough, it was started by a moderate Republican who was working in the Labor Department in uh, the Reagan administration. And his basic motivation was to say that investors should pressure corporations uh, 
to maximize shareholder value. And that became the shibboleth of of the uh, movement. And from his point of view, that means that corporations would make maximum payouts. Um, He was soon joined, though, by some pension fund managers that he had talked to, who also liked that particular idea, but then it slowly morphed into having another dimension, which was one of, corporate responsibility more generally you were responsible to the stockholders yes for maximum value but you were also supposed to be uh, a little bit socially responsible as well and so this movement started by this moderate republican or this action through his position in the department of labor which by no means was written in stone and could easily be uh, rescinded as it basically was by later the Department of Labor people uh, became a basis for encouraging these pension funds to become involved and so then what happened was there was a little bit of flurry and a movement and the pension funds complained about uh, various corporations and their practices and the newspapers picked up on it and it looked like a little bit of challenge to corporations in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s. But in fact, um, they never passed anything of real significance. They were finally able to um, convince corporations to put out their uh, little statements to shareholders, but none of those statements came even close to passing. Um, And then uh, when Republicans took over in the state of California and then changed the uh, pension fund board a little bit, they were able to then put enough pressure on the head of the pension fund, who had been hired under Democrats, um, that he lowered his profile and a year or so later uh, left uh, the pension fund and went into the private sector, managed some money there, and also sat on the board of a probably small corporation with uh, two or 3,000 employees. So that was the, um, the heart of the movement. It was in many ways over. Uh, by the middle 1990s, but there was by then a couple of organizations that were uh, basically for corporate responsibility, and they persisted. Uh, they were able to uh, obtain publicity in uh, newspapers like the New York Times and in business-oriented magazines, and they were able to present their case to uh, stockholders, and they were able to consult for groups that were concerned about trying to control corporations, and this included uh, church-based groups, which had started a a common uh, organization uh, that was investors' responsibility. It was an interfaith kind of organization. So they, and they also uh, involved unions, which is an interesting story in itself, and and, uh, as well as public kinds of of pension. But that's, that's, even though it's a lot, a lot of money that the both of them have, that is union funds and uh, public pension funds, it still wasn't big enough to have much clout uh, compared to corporate uh, pension funds, that is really definitely corporation control, mutual funds, and, uh, and soon their, their successes were, were even smaller. And now what I can see has happened is that in this attempt to uh, widen this pension fund movement, 
this in, in pension fund responsibility group had invited uh, these um, corporate pension funds to join them, and uh, of course they they then soon came to not vote for anything that was very uh, progressive, and uh, in frustration by the uh, early 2000s, uh, pretty much uh, these people had given up. So uh, in my article, I quote somebody as saying, "In 2000, we've done all the easy things and." Maybe by now we should give up. And, and by 2004, uh, a couple of the people that were leaders had, uh, had in fact, uh, gone on to other things. A couple of them still persist, but uh, it really did fizzle out. Interesting. Great. Thank you for that, that background information. So while all of this did begin in the 1990s, as you mentioned, I'm just a bit curious if you have any sense of what the implications are for those who still have their money tied up in, in, pensions fund, in pension funds at this time. Um, so what, what does that all mean uh, for the average person? Who well, the people that are recipients of pension funds only really have a right to a certain amount of money. They don't really have control of the pension funds. So in a word, I don't think there really is uh, much that they can do as... Um, you know their rights are are carefully uh, constricted, and and there, there's a lot of laws behind the way these things operate. There's a promise of money, but that doesn't mean you have uh, any particular uh, control. So I don't think there's a, a lot that can be done, and, and I think this is really symbolized by something I've uh, more recently learned since I wrote the document from a fine new sociologist at uh, New York University. Michael McCarthy, who's just finishing up a dissertation on pension funds in the post-World War II era. And uh, part of his work concerns the union pension funds, which are partly uh, controlled by either the corporate management or else sometimes by what are called fiduciaries, which are people that uh, finance people that essentially the law says they have to do, maximize the value of this pension fund and be responsible to uh, deliver the best they can for the people that are recipients. But the unions have done, McCarthy found, has done studies of, of where this money, where their money is invested. And many, many times the money of, uh, pen, of union pension funds is invested in anti-union corporations. So uh, which then sometimes the unions protest, but they haven't been able to get anywhere uh, really about it. They've been able to make a little noise uh, to the corporations and to the fiduciaries, but it's not become exactly a headline story in uh, in newspapers. So I'm very pleased to learn about that from Michael McCarthy's work. But I think it gives you an idea of how these things can boomerang when union pension funds are invested in the stocks of uh, anti-union corporations. Now, not entirely an anti-union corporation. There's a range, but the very fact they're in them at all um, shows the way this money can get away from you as far as issues of power and control, which, as I say uh, since the outset, were my primary focus, as is my focus of any work I do, and that's on the issue of power and control. Mm. 
very interesting. And that kind of works well and, and segues into the next question that I had in terms of um, this notion that you bring up in the article about pension fund socialism. And I'm curious to know why you say that this is more rhetoric than reality in terms of how, uh, again, these public pension fund groups, uh, back union public pension funds are, are depicted by these larger corporations. Okay, now pension fund socialism is a term that uh, I think it's the mid-1970s. It came from a, a management guru. He was a big name of his day, a man named Peter Drucker. And he, I don't think, really had any academic standing, but he told managers how to do better and how corporations could do great. And, you know, he was on the equivalent of the talk shows of that particular day. And he claimed that if socialism was defined by ownership of corporations by the workers, my goodness, we have pension fund socialism. And it went on and on in that particular vein. That's where that particular phrase came from. But uh, I say it's more rhetoric than reality um, because, of course, these um, uh, workers do not have any control, really, over uh, uh, these pension funds. Mm. And the interesting thing here is a tiny bit of history, and that is way back in the uh, mid-1930s, when the uh, pension funds that were controlled by big corporations, the private pension funds, were in real trouble in the face of the Great Depression. Um, they weren't getting the returns on, uh, on, the, on their investments, and they had an increasingly large number of retirees. And so what they came to understand uh, at the same time that the New Deal was wanting to create uh, both uh, unemployment insurance and old age uh, pension funds was that if they, in essence, turned their pension funds over to the federal government, uh, this would be cheaper for them. And furthermore, they could then use their private pension funds um, as sort of icing on the cake that would go towards um, their higher level executives. Hmm. So very quickly, by the mid-1930s, 36, 37, uh, way earlier than uh, than the political scientists and sociologists have, have written on this, realized by two or three years, they were really hip to the fact that um, that they would build a private uh, pension fund uh, uh, scheme on top of uh, Social Security, which was is, was and still is rather meager. Mm-hmm. But what happened that's interesting uh, is the influence of World War II which had a dramatic impact on all aspects of American life more than there's more discontinuity in certain ways than continuity due to wars and indeed due to great depressions. But in any case, during World War II, unions were not allowed to really bargain much over wages. There were wage price ceilings for the war, understandably, or else inflation would have run wild. But the National Labor Relations Board ruled that uh, that there weren't uh, ceilings on negotiations over uh, side benefits. So unions began to try to uh, to bargain for pension funds as well as health kinds of benefits. So it was really in that World War II context then that uh, that uh, unions were able to get in on the idea of private pension funds. 
and, and they did grow a bit um, to the consternation of the corporate uh, people. They did not like it at all, and uh, they essentially um, one one particular union had its own bargain for its own pension fund that it controlled in the coal industry, and indeed the Teamsters were able to get control of their pension fund, which their uh, their leaders promptly. I should say by the 50s, we're, we're using to finance the mafia and uh, crooked kind of ventures, putting money into casinos in uh, Las Vegas and so on. At any rate, 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act, an important uh, constriction on the rights of unions, said unions can't control a pension fund alone. It must be, at minimum, jointly controlled uh, with management. So at that point, um, it was hard for, for unions to really ever have any control over their pension fund. Um, but they fought like the very devil to maintain those private, to continue to, let's put it this way, to continue to uh, force in collective bargaining the ability to uh, have pension funds and health insurance. You know, other little side bennies that were, that were social insurances. Now, the reason they took that direction is very important in terms of power analysis, and that is that the plans by these pretty liberal unions had been to try to unionize the southern United States, because if you and they failed. But if you can't unionize the southern United States, then you can't possibly have enough liberal Democrats in Congress in order to create uh, a better um, a national health care system and a better pension system. So essentially the, um, the political economy of the South, both originally slave-based and then low-wage-based, uh, sharecropper-based, made it so the unions really didn't have much choice but uh, to bargain for uh, the best possible pension, private pension plans they could get and the best uh, health insurance. And that uh, went on, of course, into the uh, 1950s um, and, and continued to some extent. There was one limit on that, and that was the more money you got for your retired workers and, and, and health insurance for your retired workers, um, that meant that you were likely to get less for your current workers. So it created a tension within the union between those that were currently employed, the young people starting out and those already retired. And um, at that point, the union put a tremendous amount of effort into trying to pass Medicare and did play a very big role uh, in its passage in 1965. So that gives you a real sense of the power angles that were going on in all this, the fact that the uh, corporations in the 30s uh, went for this two-tier kind of thing so they could reward their executives uh, with higher pensions. But lo and behold, uh, World War II kind of allows unions to force themselves on the stage, and then at a certain point, uh, unions have to really fight very hard in a context where they had a real chance to win. By the late 50s, they then fought for Medicare, which they uh, won in 1965 because of the uh, landslide election for Lyndon Johnson in 1964 in the face of an extreme right campaign by 
Barry Goldwater, which was, you know, full of things like, well, we might have to drop a nuclear bomb on Vietnam, we might have to privatize Social Security. And he certainly used all the code words, straight states' rights and so on, mm. to say that he would not try to uh, force civil rights, meaning rights for African Americans in that instance, on the South, which was then a dramatic change in the United States. Great. Thank you for that really rich history. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's it's very clear to me now why someone who, again, studies power uh, structures would now be interested in this very important issue of uh, public public pension funds. So uh, I'm a bit curious to know as well as um, as these public pensions fund grew, funds grew, uh, you mentioned a lot of the resistance that was came from these private companies as they began to grow post World War II, World War II, um, and I'm just curious to know if what you describe as rapacious and often illegal actions of corporate boards are an indicator or an indication of some of that resistance in, in today's time. And um, is, that, is that an indication of how these corporate boards express their disdain for their, the growth of these public pen, pension funds? Well, the interesting thing there is that um, the corporate, what I call the corporate moderates, moderate conservatives, uh, one strain within big business, but a very important one, uh, continue to be supportive of uh, Social Security uh, throughout the early post-war World War II era. There were four changes in improvement in it, including the indexing of Social Security in the early 1970s during the Nixon administration, which means when there's no inflation, uh, those uh, people's pension uh, um, check is, is increased. It was an enormously important uh, excuse me, development, but by 1980, these uh, corporate moderates had turned against the growth of Social Security. They thought it was out of hand. And from that point on, they've been pushing the idea that Social Security is going to um, break the bank, that it's going to bankrupt the country, and so on, all of which I happen to think is totally false, because indeed you could do a number of things, including taxing every, everybody's income up to the top, or at least not just... We, we Right now, we only tax, say, the first $106,000 of an income. Well, surely we could tax the first million of the income of somebody that makes 5, 10, 15, 20 million. If you do that, you'd go a long way to solve a lot of these uh, alleged problems. But at any rate, they have created a scare campaign around that that has gone on from the 1980s to this particular day, but they haven't done it so much through their corporate boards as they've done it through their think tanks and their policy discussion groups. And, and these particular organizations then constantly put out reports about the impending disaster of uh, Social Security. But when we've looked at the boards of these think tanks and and policy discussion groups, of course, they're the people that are the directors of the major corporations in the United States. So there, it's not so much the board that does it. Mm. Um, it's these uh, these organizations that are financed and directly um, overseen by the same people that direct corporations. Interesting. Thank you. And in your article, you actually reference... 
uh, some a, a group of pension fund activists who made up Calipers, which was the which is the California Public Employees Retirement System. And you discuss some of the group's successes and failures. In your opinion, what role would you say the state plays in shaping such outcomes in terms of a group of pension fund activists, whether they can actually be successful or not? What role would you say the state plays in that? Well, I think the state plays the um, key role, the pivotal role, because the pension fund activists in California with this uh, plan called you know, CalPERS, which is you know, California Personal Employees Retirement System, um, they were really working with the blessing, the quiet blessing of Democratic administration. And the treasurer of California, I think, sits on their board or directly oversees the board. That board uh, is appointed by the uh, Democratic governor. Of course, there's some holdovers in the past. But basically, like with many uh, boards, they change, boards and agencies, they change in their leadership with changes in administration. So when the Democrats were in office in what was uh, then a pretty Democratic uh, uh, state, um, then they kind of allowed these pension funds to be a little more assertive. And they did um, make a lot of public claims. They would put out reports showing uh, corporations were derelict in one thing or another. Um, the state then played the same kind of role when uh, Republicans, conservative Republicans, came into office uh, because uh, essentially they clipped the wings of the leadership of, uh, of CalPERS. And uh, I was actually referring to CalPERS when I said earlier that this one pension fund leader, um, he, he went quiet, he went uh, lower profile once the Republicans took over in California in the early 90s. And uh, a couple years later, he left for the private sector. So uh, it's control of the government that is crucial in all of these things. And... Uh, Basically, that's true uh, in a lot of things I think uh, we're scheduled to talk about. That is that what happens with anything to have to do with pensions, with social insurance, depends upon whether the conservatives are dominant, whether they're called Democrats or Republicans, or whether people that are centrist, liberal, labor kinds of people are in um, in power, and that's true at the state level or the national level. So basically in America we have a corporate conservative coalition uh, that basically does battle with a liberal labor uh, coalition, and that battle happens well, first and foremost in a state like in Washington, but it certainly is a battle that went on in a major state like California, New York, and others. It's um, obviously uh, won by the corporate conser and conservative coalition in all the South, in the Great Plains, and many of the Rocky Mountain states. The liberal labor uh, coalition um, being more dominant, more prominent in many, many northern states. Uh, and in the last 20, 30 years, that shift has become more dramatic. So that the, the once there were once moderate Republicans that had offices and sway in the uh, Northeast and a lot of the northern states, um, but they've been replaced by ultra-conservative Republicans, and often 
the uh, Liberal Labor Coalition has mostly been dominant in that particular in in that region. But obviously, there are states where that's changed just in the last few years. The governor's level in uh, California, I mean, excuse me, in Wisconsin, but also, of course, at the legislative and and state level in Michigan, uh, which is a real shock to people. Um, so the battle continues uh, in outside the South, in the Great Plains, and a few Rocky Mountain states, where for a long time to come, as far as somebody can see, um, the corporate conservative coalition has a lock on those states. So they start with a tremendously uh, more secure base, mm. a lot, a lot of states, which matters then in terms of particularly uh, giving them all those senators, even though they have, you know, 500,000 to a million people, they still give two senators. Whereas California and New York, with lots and lots and lots more people, they also get two senators each. So um, in that sense, um, accidents of history, uh, not so much accidents that's wrong, but necessities of history from a power structure point of view, um, dictate our current uh, uh, power structure. Mm. Thank you. And, and so you referenced this battle between the corporate conservatives and liberal labor, and that being representative of the situation in states like Michigan. And I'm curious to get your take on the recent passage of right to work in Michigan, or, or what some may call the right to work for less law in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and how would you say uh, such laws, what, what type of bearing would you say it has on the fate of union pension funds or pension fund activists in general? Well, first of all, I was um, surprised by what happened in Michigan because I wasn't paying attention. And in a lot of ways, a lot of us were not paying attention because what happened was that in 2010, um, the co corporate conservative coalition put an enormous amount of effort into trying to win state legislatures in that year, precisely because it was a census year. That was also the first time that uh, Citizens United had, had made it possible for you know huge amounts of money to come sliding into those states. And so I think uh, one of the things that needs to be examined is how much uh, huge money played a role in those states. Now, the other factor, though, besides money, and this is also true of, Amer of, of generally in America, it's also the case that in 2010, uh, as often happens in off-year elections, far more people who were older, white, and conservative voted. And the supporters of the Liberal Labor Coalition didn't vote. Professor William Domhoff is distinguished professor emeritus and research research professor at the University of California Santa Cruz and more information about him and all of his amazing work can be found on whorulesamerica.net and we thank you for your time professor Domhoff and again the most recent article that we discussed today is pension fund capitalism or Wall Street Bonanza, a critique of the claim that pension funds can influence corporation, again, which can be found on whorulesamerica.net.